Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am, I'm delighted today to be here with Dr. Justin Yap. Did I say that correctly? You got it. Amazing. So thank you so much for being here. Let me just read a quick bio. Dr. Justin Yap is a clinical psychologist and associate professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. You've had some exciting things going on down there. Uh, yes, it's been a busy week for us. You have, where he works with the UNC Comprehensive Cancer Support Program and co-leads the Widowed Parent Program. Thank you so much for being here. You have lots of bios out there. Uh-huh. I would love for you to, to just also add to the introduction. I'm really grateful that you're here on the show today. Well, Megan, I really appreciate you having me and it's really good to connect and admire of what you've done and what you've created. Thank you. I actually heard about you, to be honest, from someone in one of our, a, a different support group than I think the one we're talking about today, but someone mentioned uh-huh. your podcast and, and the, you know, grief is a side hustle and it immediately resonated with me because my colleagues and I who do this widowed parent work, we kind of refer to our work as a side hustle because it's right? not it's not what I'm what I'm paid to do or really what I was brought to UNC to do. So, you know, I'm like you mentioned, I'm a psychologist and I work yeah. at the cancer center. And what I do mainly is meet with folks who have cancer or loved ones who are affected by cancer in some way and provide therapy and support to those people going, you know, unfortunately going through cancer. And that's primarily what I do. So the widowed parent work was a, was an outcrop of that, which we can talk about, but it's, it's taken up more and more of our time because we're so invested in it and we, we think there's a real need for it, but yeah. we, we, we kind of joke that it's our side hustle. Um, so yeah. when I heard the name of your podcast, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> It, the name of the podcast came about, I was watching my youngest is now 10, but when he was, you know, it was years ago, he was in a, in a show and he was singing this gorgeous song from the greatest showman. And I was super emotional because I was like, God, I, I can't call my parents and brag about my son and this incredible yeah. thing. The show was to honor members in the community. And there was a woman who was about my age and they were reading her bio. And I was like, what have I been doing with my life? Like this is, (laughs) she had a professional life and then this volunteer life. A friend of mine who was sitting with me leaned over and was like, wow, it's a hell of a side hustle this lady has. And I was like, yeah, well, grief is my side hustle. Like I spend my fair time and there it was. And I, even when I said it, I was like, wow, that sounds like something. But the interesting thing, which I feel like you are also saying is it, it may, it may sort of be a misnomer for me. I mean, my day job, the thing that, you know, makes me money is as a trauma therapist. And I work with trauma clients, all of whom, you know, trauma at the root has grief in it always. But more and more, the side hustle is the full hustle these days. Yeah. You know, I, I'm writing about it, talking about it. And similar to what you just sort of described, I'm not sure I ever expected it to quite grow the way it's grown. And anytime somebody says to me, oh, somebody told me about you, I was like, what? I think when you have a passion project that comes from, you know, the, your own heart space, then it 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 takes up all the space that it takes up. So I have lots of questions about your regular day job. And I really do want to learn more about the program and how, how it came about. But let me, let me ask you a couple of questions about the work you do with your cancer patients. Is that okay? Sure. Yeah. So, so first of all, I'm curious, what drew you to that work? And then I trained as a social worker, but I trained alongside 
people who were getting PhDs. And I feel like in the end, probably all of our training sort of came out in the wash, sort of similar. Yeah, right. But I, but I, I was always interested in like how people's the the choice of what they were going to do if they were working in a mental health clinic what the calling of their training was sort of being asked in the mental health clinic. So um, I worked at children's hospital in the emergency room for a while. So my really Mm -hmm. good handwriting because back then (laughs) everything, but also I've just always been able to work really fast. So an emergency room was a great environment for me. What drew you to working with this population? And then what would you say is like maybe specific to working with this population that isn't maybe, you know, average or the same if we were working in other clinics or environments? Yeah. So for me, it started, I, back when I started all this, I felt like I wanted to be a child psychologist. And so I went to graduate school with that in mind and was on that track and felt like it was probably the right track for me. Although I wasn't quite in love with it. The idea of kind of hanging a shingle and had people come to an office and I talked to them. And then I heard about this thing called pediatric psychology, which is within hospital settings, working, of course, with children and families. And I thought, man, that sounds uh, really, really appealing. And so I was able to finagle an externship at Children's Hospital of Michigan and um, able to finagle a dissertation that was kind of related to that. To, to that mm-hmm. area, which helped me get an internship in Columbus at the Children's Hospital. It's nationwide Children's Hospital now. And I worked, I was really drawn to working with children with cancer and their families. And that's what I tried to and eventually did hone yeah. in on. And I think, you know, part of the appeal of that is that you, you really, as opposed to maybe some other disease populations, you, you know, they're, they're there for a long time, right? Yeah. The, the most common yeah diagnosis for childhood cancer is leukemia. And you know, if you're a boy or a girl, you're with leukemia, your total protocol, you're looking at two and a half to three years. And so that just felt like a really good opportunity to get to know someone, get to work with someone long-term. And, you know, you might work with people who are otherwise psychologically healthy, but are really struggling to deal with an understandably difficult time. And so from that, I went to St. Jude in Memphis, the one you always see commercials for, yeah. um, and worked there for a few years. And then I'm from North Carolina, and so yeah. when UNC built this nice new big cancer hospital, and they had a few positions, including the one for me, which is a faculty position, but it's really a clinical position. Mm. Uh, threw my hat in the ring and got it, and started doing more adult work. And really, over the years, I've shifted, shifted doing uh, three fourths of my time is with adults. And I, I tell you what, I like about working with adults with cancer is kind of the time it takes to get in our conversations to get what really matters. And a lot of that has to do with death anxiety and mortality. It doesn't take that long to get there. It's kind of on the table. Now, sometimes I'll be the one to bring it up, but I've never kind of introduced that as something you ask someone or they think about that and have them say, oh no, I hadn't thought about that. And thought about it. You you, You get a cancer diagnosis and you're before you even hear the next sentence, you're thinking about your mortality. And that, and that is an, an undercurrent of what everyone I see goes through, um, at least on some level. And so, you know, you, we're talking about really weighty issues. Yeah. Usually in the first session, there doesn't have to be a whole lot of digging or kind of introducing it in some way. It's, it's kind of there on the table right there, and can often make 
for you know really rich conversations, but I think more kind of rich discoveries on the on the patient's part, because mm. there's nothing like you know staring down your own mortality and. And even for people who have really favorable prognosis, you know, if you have an 85% chance of surviving, that that's wonderful on one hand, but you know, before you got your diagnosis, you weren't thinking you had a 15% chance of dying. Yeah. So it's still there. And you still get to work with folks for a long time because even for treatment protocols that are relatively short, there's a lot of follow-up and certainly transition into survivorship. And, you know, once you've had a cancer diagnosis, you, you can't not ever have it again. <laughs> So it's, it's the potential for it to be a thing is always there. I'm trying to formulate this question. And so just bear with me if it comes out wrong, but but when I'm at a cocktail party, which obviously I haven't done in three years and I say to people, they say, what do you do? And I say, oh, you know, I'm trauma informed grief (laughs) specialist. People either really want to come talk to me or, and this is much more common people say the things, right? Like, I don't know how you do what you do. How do you manage this? Oh my God, that must be so awful. And it must be so tiring. And I have different ways, you know, I've been doing it 20 years. So I used to start like, no, it's exciting. It's better. It's emotional. And I don't say much about it, but I, but I will say during COVID, this is the most exhausted and the hardest it's ever been. Sure. And so I'm, I'm always, curious for people who are in the hard all the time. What are the tools? Like you haven't, you didn't say, Hey, an X percentage of my clients die, but I know that there is an X percentage of your clients who die. So dive in a little bit, if you don't mind, like, is it, is it faith-based? Is it running? You are in the world of grief the way I'm in the world of grief. And a lot of what I offer is treatment for symptoms, right? In those yep. moments, that's what my trauma training is about. But I have discovered, and I can even like hear the catch in my voice with it, that the like coming back up to the surface is oof, rough these days. And, you know, part of it is the chaos of the world. Like, you know, I put something on my Instagram the other day that was like, you have to rotate what you care about. We cannot care about all of the chaos all of the time. But, you know, I, when I worked in the emergency room at children's hospital here in DC, I worked there for 10 months. That was not a a space, you know, children died when I was there. Tell me about like, what are the things that either the routines or the rituals or the pieces of your life that help you do what to me sounds like pretty hard and holy work. Yeah. So I, I, I live in Raleigh, work in Chapel Hill, and that's about a 45 minute commute, which on some days I'm, I'm cursing, but I think it gives me a nice buffer to go home from work. And then I'm not just kind of walking out and walking into home and it, it's kind of with me. I listen to the radio or a podcast or whatever it is. And that yeah. 45 minutes to kind of have a buffer zone, I think is a good thing for me, but I, I mean, I don't, I don't know, you know, this is a, a tough question because I don't know that I do it right or yeah. worse than anyone, but I, one thought that helps me is that, you know, there is obviously pain and suffering and, but that pain and suffering is happening, whether I have a front row seat for it or not. Mm. Right. So these you know, people are hurting and, and people die. And just because I'm there, and if I wasn't there, doesn't make it 
not happen or happen. So I'm not a causal mm-hmm. agent. It doesn't mean it doesn't affect me, but I think being willing to kind of be in that space, I don't know, this is hard, but I, if I wasn't in that space, it might be easier for me, but it wouldn't change the outcome just because I wouldn't see that child dying doesn't mean that child's not dying. I get so it. It, it. It doesn't, you know, it might hurt me or it might affect me or penetrate me more, but it's just because I'm willing to put myself in the space like you are, and we all are to some degree at least. And, and, you know, feeling crappy and feeling pain and, and, and hurting is not, it's not a great thing, but it's not an avoidable thing. It's a human thing. And yeah. um, so that, and I think I just try to think, of, you know, try to distract myself and I have kids. So that helps. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that I have a great answer. It's a great question. I don't know that I, that I have a great answer to it because I don't know that I do it, you know, any better than most people at all, but um I always think about when I'm working with clients and they're like, you know, always complaining about their managers, right? Like that's what everybody complains about is the person above them and their unreasonable expectations. And, and one of the things I'm always mystified to discover is that those managers didn't really get any training to be a manager, even though there are manager management trainings. The thing I've been thinking about lately is how few actual therapists there are in the world to hold the amount of energy that is out there. And then we as humans are sort of like a limited resource. And while we are taught a lot about like how to, how to treat, we are not maybe required to learn how to offset the energy, you know, the, the, the energy that we hold. Right. I, I have someone who listens to the podcast that always writes me, writes me the funniest things. And he's like, what does holding space even mean? (laughs) And that's really hard to even describe, but therapists know, clinicians know, we know that, that when we're in the current of sort of that space of bearing witness for a a client, the thing I found myself thinking about a lot lately, mostly just because of the wear and tear on my own psyche, but also because I I think people are sort of training like we've always been training, even though maybe the needs are higher. So I'm interested in this idea of like, also we we need more training on what is it that we do to let go of the energy. And, uh, and I've been studying all this like Reiki and doing much more energy work stuff that in my early days of a therapist, I would have been like, that's total bullshit. That's <laughs> like, that's not a thing. One of the things that delights me in my own adult life is to discover how wrong I have been at different times about different things. So energy work is one of the ways, but you know, I know people who, who develop like spiritual practices or exercise practices. And I think of them all as sort of the verb of maybe grieving. And I think when you're holding someone's fear and energy and grief and worry, also there has to be that act of like letting it go. And I, I like what you described because I think my husband would say something similar. He misses his commute. He used to take a train and then walk to the office Mm -hmm. and he doesn't do that anymore. And I think his, I think that used to help clear his head and reset his energy sort of the way you're describing. Yeah. And so now that I do some of my work virtually some days when I'm not at the hospital, I do, you know, kind of see people virtually and then close my computer screen and, you know, go into the kitchen and I'm there. And I, I don't know if that's the best thing. Yeah. Um, well, in a lot of these things in COVID, particularly 
you know, I, I still haven't gone back to my office, which is tricky because some of the stuff I do involves touch and involves sort of my energy and somebody else's energy. I've been stunned to discover it works better than I originally in my calamity. Yeah, I think we've all, a lot of us have found that. Yeah. I, I mean, I, and I, you know, I really hope the insurance companies just accept that we can do telework and just let us keep doing telework. That's the big thing because yeah. boy, it's, it's, it's a hit with, with, with the clients. That's for sure. Which it's I get, hit. especially with, you know, people ask you have cancer. It's, I used to have to try to coordinate my in-person visit when they were there receiving chemotherapy or their radiation treatments or whatever. And that worked okay, but that's a lot to tack on to an already long day. I see people, of course, any day of the week, not contingent upon when they're receiving treatment. And we, you know, we're this kind of the state hospital for this area. So we have folks coming in from, you know, distances away. And, you know, if you ask someone if they want to drive three hours, park, pay to park, wait in line, come see me, or just kind of open their computer and see me, it's not even close. Yeah. I haven't thought about that. I mean, I, my, my dad died of small cell cancer years ago, and it was sort of like from diagnosis to death, it was exactly a year and a week. Sure. Some members of our family didn't really fully understand what the cancer was and what the prognosis was, but I did, and he did. And, you know, he, he experienced a lot of depression and I don't think his life was one where he had experienced a lot of depression. He had been much more sort of on the anxious side of things. And it was really mystifying to him. And I think probably he was in Massachusetts and Massachusetts has some weird rules. Like their hospice happens in rehab facilities. So he went from the hospital to a rehab hospital because he didn't really have use of his legs anymore, but he did, he did have a therapist there who, you know, was on site who could meet him whenever it worked for his schedule. And it hadn't occurred to me until you just said it, that of course, if someone's coming from a distance and they're coming to a hospital, They've got to get all of the services that hospital has to offer in one day. And you know what? Probably after you've had all your chemo and all the good or bad news from your doctor and eaten the crappy food in the (laughs) not trying to insult yours, but my hospital had crappy food meeting and then digging deep into your feelings. That's a lot to ask of someone in one day. It's a lot to ask. And, you know, frankly, I think you know, what, what I do is important, but I'm not the most important meeting they have that day, right? I mean, that's, you meet right. Your that, that's why you're there. That's um, right. And as I'm sure you experienced with your father, clinic schedules run way behind and it can throw off the day. So in that way, telehealth has been, I think, a real blessing on, uh. on the sides of the screen. And a lot of it, frankly, is going to come down to whether or not insurance companies continue to reimburse. Then we'll We'll have to readjust, but that's that's going to be that's going to be a, a setback for a lot of people. It's going to be a hard argument for them to make that the quality of the care hasn't been great. And again, like you know, by the time someone gets to my office, they have usually tried other kinds of therapy and right. found the kind of treatment that they're coming to me for, like EMDR and sensory motor psychotherapy and IFS stuff, is specialized. So it's been a real blessing. I mean, I have a couple of clients who it took them a decade to find. And and honestly, the podcast was the thing that brought them to me. So I feel really grateful for that. But, you know, 
a couple of them have been with me eight weeks and their symptoms are already a lot better. And that's not because I'm a remarkable therapist. It's because they needed treatment for their actual issues and not, you know, sitting and talking about it in the traditional way that they had had in the past wasn't working. It will be devastating to me to think that the, the people who are trained in the way that I am trained will only be able to see the folks in their catchment area again. That just, I hope that doesn't, I mean, I know you hope that doesn't happen, but I really had not considered what that would mean in clinic settings. And from the patient care, man, being able to offer telehealth must be game changing. Yeah. It makes you wonder why we didn't, I mean, we had the capability before March, 2020, we just never really thought about it or knew it, or, I mean, it it was there, it just wasn't what any of us, you know, were used to, but. Well, I think we uh, believed it wasn't as good. I mean, I did. Yeah. I I think, I think that's true. I I think a lot of us have been surprised that it worked as well as it has, but you know, for our profession, you know, we don't take temperatures. We don't, I mean, there there is, right. You know, there is a benefit to being in person, but even right now, to be frank in person, when I do see folks in person, we both have to wear masks. I know it almost feels a little bit less connective to meet in person than it does online because online, of course, we're, we're, it's each other's faces. Yeah. Uh, but I've, you know, that should not be the case forever and ever, right? I, I mean, I hope not, but I, but that's the same. That's why I'm not back in the office is I, you know, I study micro movements. So this face-to-face that what like what we're doing yeah. is actually it's, it's better. And, and in my office, my office isn't set up this way. Cause this is pretty intense. Like close face-to-face is yeah, a lot. Yeah. And so my chairs are actually on an angle and I, you know, I, I lean in so that I can get all, but I am also careful to like break eye contact and, you know, I've learned how to sort of manage it both for myself and for other people, but we'll see. I mean, for now I'm not back in the office and yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it will mean. Will you, t- will you tell us also, maybe it was more why, why you reached out, but tell us about the program that you run that you described in the beginning, because that really does sound like a passion project and something that's really unique and really needed. Yeah. So it started, it's been 12 years now, I think, since we started doing this. And it um, unfortunately came out of, I had several young uh, mothers, maybe their forties, thirties or forties who I was seeing for, you know, for counseling and were, as, as they were going through their cancer treatment. And Sadly, it so happened that all three of these young ladies passed away, died around the same time. And yeah. during one of our, our, our team meetings, I, I brought this up and uh, just to discuss it and process it. And my colleague, boss, uh, Don Rosenstein said, you know what, you know, I can't imagine what their surviving husbands are going through, grieving the loss of, you know, their, their young spouse, but also having to raise kids on their own and all that must entail. We should refer them to a support group. Yeah. I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll do that. And so I looked around for support groups for widowed fathers and kept looking and didn't see anything. I have a friend who's a librarian um, at UNC and I asked her, I said, you're, you're much better at looking for this stuff than I am. Can you help me out and see if you can find anything? And she looked and basically came back and said, there's just nothing out there. Nothing. That, and so I talked to Don again, told him that. And that just seemed like an almost unbelievable gap. You know, there's support groups for just about anything. Everything. And so it seemed like if, you know, we didn't know what it was like to be a widowed father, young widowed father, but that just seemed like something that would be extremely isolating and having connected with other people in the same boat may be helpful. 
So not really, you know, not ever having, we don't support groups, but not for this, we decided to start one up. And so we got those couple of those guys together, sent the word out far and wide to try and get others. You know, it's not exactly easy to, to find men because, you know, there's no registry, right? And then right. you find them that, you know, a lot of guys are not real keen on coming to a support group, but we were able to cobble together, you know, seven guys for that first support group and wow. it turned out just to be incredible. We went into it thinking it was going to last six sessions, that it was going to be divided into kind of a didactic part where we would do kind of teaching on some relevant topic and then time for group discussion. But by the end of that first meeting, the the guys had let us know that 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 didn't sound right. That's not what's happening. Yeah. And it was pretty clear they had a lot more to share with and learn from each other than they had to learn from us. And so we on that first night realized that our place in this was was not a, a kind of teacher or instructor, or it was really a facilitator of this group and this dynamic. And one of the guys said, you know, if this, if this does help, why, why do you guys just want to do six sessions? And we were like, well, shit, that's a good idea. We don't know. <laughs> I'll do right out. <laughs> yeah. So we said, well, all right, so let's change that too. Right. So let's just keep it open-ended and, and see how it goes. So we partnered with the men on that first night and ended up that one group ended up meeting for almost four years and not only did they really help and compel each other to to heal and grow and move forward in their grief but they really helped us a lot and and so what started with just a support group that we thought might fill a need eventually grew into a whole program and these guys helped us you know build a website they were willing to be, you know, we videoed them, talk about their experiences we put on the website. We wrote early manuscript that was published and has been put in that. And and since then we developed a research program and we probably, I don't know, published a dozen plus papers and have a few more in the works. And really these guys, not only that, but they helped us in our day jobs, helped us think about how to work with parents who have cancer and have a terminal prognosis and what things are not talked about, what things need to be talked about, what needs to be discussed and put on the table before it's too late, what the caregiver spouse feels comfortable bringing up, what they kind of can't, all those things that we kind of knew, but really didn't have a, a good flavor of. You guys taught us about that. And eventually it came up to Don and I that this would make for an interesting book. And so we went to them and said, guys, we, we think, you know, if we write a book that tells through your story and your true lived experiences of grief and reimagining life and what it means to grieve your own loss, help children grieve their loss, figure out how in the hell to be a sole parent and what that means, Mm. deal with in-laws, but are they still in-laws, dating again when you don't feel like dating, but you got to tell your kids, all these things. We thought that might make for a really compelling, rich book and then we weaved in some some a little bit of research but it's not real not real research and the guys were all about it and they insisted that we use their real names right their pictures in the book their real stories they were not shy about us you know describing their warts and their setbacks as well as their successes and the men just were incredible when the book came out you know we got we were fortunate enough to get some publicity about it and of course, the guys were willing to go on, you know, the Today Show and some other spots we had and talk about their individual pain, but also their kind of collective experience as a group and what it meant to get guys in a room once a month to talk about stuff that 
a lot of guys don't talk about, to be honest. And yeah, so these, you know, these guys, it's been years since we met with them regularly, but they still hold a place in our heart and we continue to do this work, right? So we do our, we're doing our research. We have expanded now to, we have a mother's group. We have two father's groups going on right now and the work continues. And, you know, there's really still not a whole lot out there for these young widows and widowers. And it's a really isolating experience, right? It's as, as any of them will tell you, um, it is not the same as being divorced and having kids at home. It is not the same, frankly, as losing a spouse when you're 75 and, and grieving a life lived instead of grieving a life that was never realized. It's just, uh, it's a narrow enough niche that, it w- that there's not a whole lot of people, but there's enough. And it's specific enough that every, even though everyone in our groups has their own story, there are similar through lines that all of them experience. And that when one of the guys talks about it, you see a bunch of heads nodding around the room, right? It's, and it's a really isolating experience and you question your, your, your parenting, are you doing it right? You don't want to mess up. You want to live up to the ideals of your, of your spouse who died. You have to figure out how to balance your own grief with your children's grief. Now, all the time when you're now having to, you know, you're carrying the baton alone and you're having to do everything yourself and having to do things that your spouse did that you didn't even, I can't tell you how many guys we've heard from, <laughs> and I guess some women, but mostly guys who have said, I had no idea all the things my wife did. Yeah. And, and now that it all falls on you and you're having to go to the, the parent teacher meetings and figure out your son's IEP and, you know, we've had, again, several fathers who have had young teenage daughters and nothing makes you feel like you're more out of your comfort zone than having to talk about periods and menstrual cycles. And, um, and you know, we had one guy tell us, you know, I said, he's like, my wife died. I mean, his daughter was maybe 11, I think. He said, I didn't know. Maybe they had had that talk. I didn't know. Right. Um, right. I had to introduce it. I had to talk about it. And there's just, it, it's just really, I mean, it's, 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 you know, the, the book we wrote is certainly sad, right? I mean, there are parts of it that, you know, are just by the nature kind of gut wrenching, but in the end, it's, I think people would agree it's a pretty hopeful book, right? And that these men and their children took about the biggest hit you could imagine and absorbed it. And, figured out a way to carry on and, you know, realize that there's no getting over this. There's no kind of working through any magical stages or any of that crap. Um, it, you know, that, no, I mean that, and it's funny, you know, there, we had one guy in our group, the first, that first group, his name was Carl. And he, he said, he said, you know, I, I don't know anything about grief. He's a software engineer, but I mean, that's yeah. not his deal. He said, so all I really knew was these five stages and Which are he was, it's complete bullshit. And he was trying to kind of comport how he was feeling into one of these things. Like, yeah. is this anger? Is this me? You know, and I'm not going in order. And he felt like he was the one doing it wrong because he wasn't doing one of these things. And you know, once we talked about it, it's like, you know, the thought that grief could entail five emotions and that's the entirety of it. And then they somehow, they unfold. yeah, I mean, you know, you could just list any emotion and grief is all encompassing. And so 
you know, once Don and I really get into this, we found a model, a theoretical model that we think really works and that we is very forgiving and not instructive into how people feel, but really kind of helps people understand how they feel. You know, or the dual, dual process dual model. Yeah. All right. There you go. Yeah. Our favorite. I yeah. know. I tell you what, if, if I could, if I had a magic wand, I would, I would erase all the five stages talk and, and supplement it with the dual process model. Because you know that, first of all, I just like, I can barely catch my breath with what you're describing because to me, I, I mean, I can kind of feel the power of, of this particularly your, your group that you wrote about. And the book is called the group, right? Is that? Is yeah. That right? Yeah. It's called the group seven widowed fathers reimagined. Yeah. So people know that I'll buy a bunch of those copies and if people want them, they can just, I'll, I'll, I'll tell them in the show notes how to get them. Um, Perfect. And, and just to say real quick, all the proceeds from the book go back to the program. Don, okay. Don't keep any of the money. It's not Come on, you good people, you. That's well, <laughs> it felt kind of wrong to tell the story of these seven men and then make my seven. That, no, I hear you. I hear it. Well, I'll have copies of it. So people who are interested in it and, and want a copy and can't get it for themselves, just know that you can get in touch with me and I'll send it out. My assistant will help. But I real the power of first, first, what I was really struck by is that at our best as clinicians, we are curious with some capacity to support, yeah. hold, right. The curiosity and the flexibility is, is us at our best, right? Like I had a train, I, Stan Tacton, who does packed therapy was my mentor for couples therapy when I was training. And he would say, stay still until you're inspired. And I just mm-hmm. like, right. do not move until inspiration. And I've never forgotten that, that like, yeah. you know, people don't need us until there is an energy that generates that sort of shows us the point at which to go. And I just, I think a lot about co-creation, the idea that I'm not an expert in something, you know, a, right. a, a griever is an expert in grief. Like I just know the dual process model exists. You know, I just have yeah. studied some things and can help them maybe feel less alone with education. There are other people have experienced these things and then maybe facilitate something where experts can share with each other. But it to, to me, when I'm hearing about that, program is it feels like people who, I don't know, they're from a small island nation with a very special dialect of Spanish or something. Like they understand each other in a way that, you know, all grief matters. But when you are in this stage of raising young children and you have to grieve and function all in the same day, because those kids have, they need new sneakers and they need milk and they need to be picked up from the bus it's a different, it's a different task. And Mary Frances O'Connor, who wrote the grieving brain, which you might know, she says ultimately really what it is, is an overload of data. That early grief is just your world was like this. And now it's like this. And it takes a long time for the brain to sort of be like, okay, where are the socks? Where do we keep socks in this? Right. And that's when people describe kind of being in that fog. Yeah which you can, I think people realize in real time, but it's even clearer in retrospect. You can look back, you think, God, totally. I, don't, I don't know what the hell I did for those first few months. Yeah. But uh, as you pointed out, you know, these men and women don't have the, you know, the, the, the luxury, if you will, of, yeah. of, of not acting because 
you know, I always think about this. We had one of the fathers in our first group, Steve. His children were three, five, and seven when his wife died. Uh, really rare form um, of bone cancer that's usually seen in adolescents, not not adults. And she died at home with hospice one night, you know, about four or five o'clock in the morning. Steve was there with the nurse. The children were still sleeping. And he described how he had about an hour and a half of just him grieving, you know, his wife's death. And and then his children were getting up, right? And so he collected all three of the children and put them in one of the children's beds and, and told them that their mom had died. And the oldest one understood and was sad. And the other two kind of took the cues from her. And so already he was grieving his own loss and he was having to start to begin to explain to help his children grieve their loss. And then he said, one of his kids said, dad, I'm hungry. Yeah. And of course, right? And right. so he had, to, he had to go down and make breakfast because he was the dad. He was the only person there, right? No one was, no one had come help yet at that point. He was by himself. So within the first three hours of his grief, yeah. all three of those things, his own grief, yeah. his own loss, helping his children grieve their loss and being an only parent were all front center and pressing and they're all day one, right? And so we talk a lot about how those, those are three really big buckets, but most yeah. things, fall into those. And then at some point, months, months, months down the road, you get to the point, year, maybe years, where you start, you know, kind of wanting to, needing to, thinking about how to reimagine a life moving forward. Yeah. And that's a little bit of a delayed process, of course, but, and that's kind of the fourth big bucket. That's even a bigger bucket, you know, and all that that entails. And that's really complicated when you have kids, especially when it comes to thinking about dating or when do you take off your ring or what do you do with pictures on the wall, but you know, those are your wife, but it's also your kid's mom. And so all this kind of dual grief that you have to be sensitive toward and, and navigate. One of the guys, Bruce said, what, what, he had a great line when he talked about when he began to start dating again, whenever it was, you know, down the road. He said when, when he was in his twenties and dating, it was a little bit like doing a jigsaw puzzle, right? You just had to kind of find the right match. Yeah. It's hard. You had to find the right match. But when you're a widower uh, and you have kids, he said it's like trying to do a Rubik's Cube, right? It's multidimensional. There's all different colors. There's oh sides. God. Like, you, you know that there's a solution. It can be done. But you're looking at this thing thinking, how the hell do I do this? Yeah. Um, and he, he ended up doing it beautifully. But it's just really complicated. And... You know, the fact is people, of course, grieve at, at different intervals and in different ways. And so you may be grieving one way, but your teenage daughter may be a, a, a more of a delayed grief and your younger child may have questions and you're trying to all these moving parts. It's just infinitely complicated. And to have a space where you can meet with other people yeah. who get it, get and it, really get it and don't just give you the kind of, oh, I understand what you're going through. And you think, well, no, the hell you don't. But they, you know, they really, really get it. You know, there's just not a, a substitute for having that kind of community. And this situation is rare enough that these guys don't have, they don't have friends that are good at fathers, right? Yeah. I mean, they have people who are divorced or maybe, but there's no one likely within their close orbit of people who is really in their boat. And so having these forums, people can connect is just, 
you know, it's really invaluable. And the work that Don and I do, I mean, you know, maybe we do more than we give ourselves credit for, but the best thing we do is just have the forum Show up. roll out the yeah. ball. We don't have any structure to our group. We don't have any talking points. We start with, all right, guys, what's been going on the last month? And the conversation goes from there. What you're talking about, and and I want to remind people if they don't know that the dual process model, which is strobe and shoot, is this idea that you are spending some time in the grief process during the day, the month, the year, and that you and that the pendulum also swings to so there's grief and there's restoration, and that you're also living life forward because right. even if you feel like you aren't. You know, I, I every, every once in a while, I'll turn to my husband and be like, I cannot believe they've been dead this long. Yeah, I've right. lived this many days after my dad died, my mom died. And suddenly, and I, I still am like, how is it, how is it possible? I've lived two and a half years without my mother. How is that possible? Right. But that's the reality of it. And I think part of what you're describing and, you know, folks who listen to this podcast know that really the thing, the nugget, and I work on this in all different ways, and I'm, I'm working on it on a sort of large scale with a curriculum, is that I just really cannot believe that we do not teach, I just say at the college level, a core education class about grief and loss. That and, there's and, a biological component that we could teach yeah. about the brain fog and about, and, and an emotional component I mean, I know you could teach it. I know I could teach it. Yeah, but but it's it's very rarely taught, and it's like, you know almost basically if you live long enough, it's going to be a universal experience. Where but you're why gonna, do we do that? I mean, you know that conversation that 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 guy was going to have with his daughter about puberty. You know whether or not he had it. Most schools do that. Most schools, my kids at age eleven, right. came running home like, "Don't make me take this class, mom." It's going to be awful. And the reason is we want children to understand that they have to have some agency with their bodies, but they also have to have some education about bodies so that they can ask the right questions and be safe. And in my mind, you know, so I'm a grief and loss specialist. My dad died of cancer, which I was able to participate in. And that experience for me was what I would have wanted. My mother died almost two years exactly after my dad died suddenly in her sleep. And I experienced PTSD so significantly that I ended up in an inpatient facility in Tennessee, actually. And it stunned the shit out of me. I could not believe, and I knew exactly what was happening because I treat PTSD. Mm -hmm. And I came out of that experience like, look, If I can be this undone and I know all the things and I do all the things, you know, I know there's a lot of data out there that's like, oh, it's only 6% of people who have prolonged grief disorder. It's only 25% who are even going to need to see a therapist. First of all, I don't trust that data. I'm sorry. I don't trust (laughs) it. I don't trust it because I don't think people report on grief symptoms because I don't think they know that their symptoms are grief. Other than crying, most people are not able to say to me, you know, it's so common for a client to come in and say, you know, I've been feeling really bad for a year and I'll walk it back and be like, well, what happened a year ago? My dad died, but I don't think that's why my back hurts. Like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to help you unpack this a little, but I really believe that, you know, both the idea that we can, we could be teaching and then also the they do this in other countries so much better than we do. 
rounding folks up so that they can feel like, oh my God, I'm sitting with a native speaker of this exact experience. And because some of what you're describing, I'm assuming is concrete help that one dad is saying to another dad, this is what I did. And that guy's like, give me that phone number. Yeah, there, there is some of that. And there is some very kind of practical problem solving often around parenting in this context that is, and a lot of it's just emotionally resonating with each other. But yeah, like, I think you're right about a lot of that. And I think that, you know, it's, we focus on grief, you know, back to the dual process model. We focus, we think of grief more as the loss arena stuff, right? Looking back, um, ruminating on what was, thinking about what we should have done differently or, uh, and that's central to grief. And that's what we think about, but the other part, kind of the restoring life moving forward and all the new challenges that are present because of that loss. I don't think we think of that as grief. That's right. And I, I think, you know, the dual process model helps us understand that that very much is grief. And so grief. for these parents, when they're trying to figure out, you know, what to do when their daughter has a, you know, has their first menstrual cycle, that in this context, I think that's a grief related experience. <sighs> but you wouldn't think of it like that, of course. That guy, that's such a great point. I love this podcast because people are always teaching me and reframing (laughs) because I would put myself in the category that I don't know that I think of the restoration component, the living forward component as grief. And yet in my own life, I would tell you, I am still grieving my mother's death every single day in all the things that I do. And my, my clinical work and my life and all that, you know, there's been a little bit of a curve in there. You know, it doesn't look the same as it was before. So even though you could obviously say, well, from the date of her death until now, this whole big thing has grown, it's grown out of grief. I don't know that I would have said it was grief. I had a gentleman on the podcast last week who read Peterson, who he has an app called Evolve Grief, which is about meditation and things. And he said so beautifully, he said, you know, grief is sort of the internal process and mourning is more the external process. And Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, again, I don't think there's a truism. I just liked the framing of the verbing of the Mm -hmm. grieving, because that's the part that I think people, they really have a hard time with. And so when clients are coming in and they're telling me they're feeling crazy, I have a lot of neuroscience and a lot of biology that I can tell them about like what their hippocampus is doing and what the amygdala has caused. I don't even need to be that sciencey. Then being able to say sort of like, here are the typical emotional things that people talk about. You know, there's always that person that says the super stupid, crappy thing. There's always the person who doesn't show up and the person who does show up. I think the the part that always we land on is the hopefulness, right? Like the idea that life will not only ever be this bad and limited to this terrible thing, that there will be growth and beauty and happiness and things that, you know, make it all sort of worthwhile. And that's very, very hard to believe, particularly in early grief. It it absolutely is. And fortunately, it ends up being true for the vast majority of people. Vast majority of people. You know, that's the way humans are wired, right? To be resilient in that way. Otherwise, we would have ceased to be a species millennia ago, right? I mean, it's wildly humbling. And to me, I feel like there's real, there's real spiritual holiness in, in 
being allowed in as one of the native speakers of grief, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that you can treat people for. I think, I think grief is one of those where people can tell if you're one of them or not, you know, have you had an experience or not, they can kind of sniff you out. But in my experience, also the people who are, who are in the grief world have been drawn to it for, you know, heart reasons, reasons that they want to be, you know, holding that kind of energy in that space, but the story of being able to really just convene and invite this group of men together to really hold space for each other and bear witness, right? Like I think a lot about clients who have big things going on and maybe not a big network. Sometimes what I'll say to them is tell me when it's happening and I'll light a candle. You know, you tell me when it's happening and I will create some energy in my space and send it to you in your space. And I think a dad who's lost his wife, dressing his daughter to go to her first prom, six other dads knowing that that's what he's doing that night is just an incredible, energetic, beautiful gift. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, and and we talked earlier about how hard it can be to do some of this work, but you know, I, and Don would tell you the same thing. When we get done with our groups, we're kind of like, that was energizing. Yeah. And, you know, and there's, I mean, there's certainly moments in the groups still that are, that are, that are painful, but there's a lot of laughter and a lot of joking and a lot of humor that, that, you you know, if anyone else made the jokes, it wouldn't, it wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. You can't. Yeah. yeah, but but when these guys kind of rib each other or kind of point out, you know, <laughs> some of the absurdities of their lives, it 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 connects. And yeah, if you were just to turn off the sound and watch a meeting, you you wouldn't have much of a clue that it was a meeting based around grief. It it there's there's a lot of kind of uplifting and humorous moments, and yeah. I think that's that's an important example for these guys to set for each other and for Don and I and other group leaders to facilitate in part because who wants to come to a meeting every month where it's just kind of a downer for an hour and a half. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and I, it sounds to me again, you know, I think at, at the very base, at the, at the most basic level, a therapeutic environment has to have an element of hope, right? It has to it, yeah. It, otherwise what are you doing yeah Yeah, otherwise we're just killing time and so to me you know it's a nice little full circle to our conversation because i think people who whether you're a clinician or not but but it is really rewarding you know when when you're an emotional human being which we all are but you know to sit and be in the authentic real story. You know, I've said mm-hmm. it many times and I don't even really know what I mean when I'm saying it, but like my dad's death, because I was with him when he died was like one of the realest moments of my life, kind of like mm-hmm. birthing my babies, everything else melts away. And it's just in this moment and very singular. And I think there are so many moments when you're sitting with people in grief where the intensity and the pain sort of begets a kind of connection that feels like this is really what life is all about. Right. The rewarding, I mean, I can, people can't see you, but the look on your face when you're describing it looks like 
you know, love. It looks, it looks right. um, really beautiful and like it's very important and special to you. I understand that what you're describing is it's an honor for you to be able to do it. And that's the gift It's yeah. a gift to everybody, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 and I, I think that's right. And yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's hard work, but it's also meaningful work. And in the end has a lot more rays of hope than I think it does when you get the comments of, Oh my gosh, how do you do this for your work? I know. And, and look, we, we all get that. And certainly I get it. Right. I mean, if I yeah. say, oh, well, yeah, I work with children with cancer. It's like, Oh my yeah. God, you're yeah. trying to stab me in the heart. So yeah, I get those and I understand those, but you know, there's a lot more human, you know, happy yeah. times than, you know, it's not just some blanket experience of draped in black and everyone's kind of mourning. And there are those times, but there's also the other. Yeah. I remember having a conversation with a, a group of girlfriends. Somebody was like, spent the whole day frustrated with their photocopier at work and, you know, getting yelled at by a boss, whatever the job was. And she was like, how was your day? And I didn't even know how to really respond because like I had spent the day with a woman who had just decided to leave her husband, which sounds like it was really awful, but it actually didn't feel awful. It felt like this big moment of like hope and change. And, yeah. and I was like, yeah, it wasn't, didn't feel like a frustrating you know, photocopier. That's not what my day was. It was, it was something real different than that. Very, very different energy. So even though it's hard, I do think there is a reason why we're, we're drawn to it. I want to ask before I let you go, cause I got to let you go. Are the meetings happening? Can people join them if they're listening? Yeah. How do they, how do they yeah. reach out? I'll put it in the show notes, but do you want to just tell folks like, what's the best way to. Yeah. The best way probably, to, or the best way to reach me is to look on our website. It's called widowedparent.org. Yeah. yeah. And people can contact me directly. My, but my email's on there, but it's justin underscore yop at med.unc.edu too much to remember right down, but it's all, yeah, yeah. it'll be there. It'll be in the, the, show website. Notes, the show notes, people. It'll be there. Um, yeah. And you know, we used to be restricted to just people in the, in central North Carolina, but now we hmm. uh, of course do this online and you know, we have people in one of our groups who live in, someone lives in Florida, someone lives in Delaware. And you know, this is, again, this is back to the side hustle part. This is not what we do all day, but we, right. we, we do it enough that we, and we have some people who are starting up a group in Chicago and our hope is that these will kind of be created all over the country. That hasn't yeah. quite happened yet, yeah. but that's our hope and what we're putting some of our energy toward. Well, hopefully this conversation will help you expand that and people will reach out because it does sound like just a really incredible resource. I'm so grateful. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me on. And, oh, uh, this and, was really a delight. It was lovely to be connected. This was such a lovely conversation. I appreciate you meeting with me, Megan. It was good to talk Thanks. and uh, I admire your work and yeah. this podcast. So thank let's, you let's so be sure much. To keep in it touch. was lovely. Thank you. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.